News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, one more sign that things are getting back to normal. We're back to talking about health issues other than the pandemic, like the fight against cancer. And that fight is ramping up. Any family who has dealt with a cancer diagnosis will be glad to hear that. Joining us this morning is Sarah Roth, the president and CEO of the BC Cancer Foundation. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Sammy. Let's talk about what you've got going on at the BC Cancer Foundation. This sounds like a pretty big new campaign you've got. We have launched today a $500 million campaign for BC Cancer. That is huge. How is this going to work? Tell me about it. Cancer is the number one public health challenge facing our generation and generations before us and generations to come. One in two of us will face cancer in our lifetime. The BC Cancer Foundation is the largest charitable funder of cancer in our province, and we support all six BC Cancer Centers. So this campaign will advance research and innovation, will increase access to care, and will support the people who work tirelessly at BC Cancer, both in the clinics and in the labs to tackle this devastating disease. Can we talk about the enhanced care part of this too? Because any family, as I said, who gets a diagnosis, it it is such a difficult, difficult time. And my experience with that system has been that the people who work within it are phenomenal, but for the families, enhanced care can only be a good thing. So in what ways would you enhance care? For example, Uh, Just two years ago, or a recent example, two years ago, we had two PET-CT machines in British Columbia, both located at BC Cancer Vancouver. So we partnered with our amazing community of over 100,000 donors to bring additional PET-CT capacity to BC Cancer Victoria and BC Cancer Kelowna. We're also investing in new technology and radiation therapy and also in people who deliver the care. So these are ways that we as a foundation can partner with BC Cancer to ensure that patients and families do have the care they need closer to home. Yeah, what is a PET-CT? How does that matter to people? Sure, PET-CT is a diagnostic imaging tool also used for treatment. So it's, if you think of it as a very advanced X-ray where they can actually see the individual cancer cells in your body to determine where the tumor is, has the cancer spread, or is it just localized? That will then inform the treatment plan. Okay, so how is this Beyond Belief fundraising campaign going to work? What are you going to be doing? Well, Beyond Belief is the name of the campaign, which I love, because what we're really trying to do is, uh, it's, a, it's a call to action. It's a call for every every British Columbia to get behind our cancer system and our cancer researchers, to tell them we believe in you. We actually believe you can go beyond belief. We believe that you can imagine what's possible. And that takes resources. I mean, when you think of your cancer journey, if you're a cancer patient from diagnosis to survivorship, somewhere along that cancer journey, donor support, support from the community has played a significant role whether it's from a discovery in a lab that led to the drug you're taking, or as I mentioned, advanced diagnostic imaging that helped the caregivers give you very precise treatment. Those are all ways that donors have made a difference in your cancer experience. So how can people get involved in this if they wanna help out? 
we would love for British Columbians to send a message to BC Cancer that we believe in you, that we we are behind you, that now is the time. This is the most exciting time in science. When you talk to BC Cancer scientists, they say, this is, we're on the precipice of such huge discoveries. So we've got a URL that uh, potential donors can go to, which is gobeyondbeliefbc.ca, as well, the bccancerfoundation.com website. And we invite all British Columbians to join this campaign, know that every donor dollar stays in British Columbia and goes directly to support BC Cancer. I love this, Sarah. Also, that talk about how we seem to be on the precipice of some some major, you know, breakthroughs when it comes to cancer. Does it help that in the United States they're also talking about this too? Like it does seem like all over the world they're discussing. They refer to it in the states as what their cancer moonshot. Oh, it's such an exciting time, and that's largely because of the advances in technology that you and I experience every day in our lives. At BC Cancer, we are world experts in many areas of cancer. You talk about the United States, well, BC is on the map. We are world leaders in breast cancer, gynecologic cancer, prostate cancer, for example. My friend was recently diagnosed with breast cancer, and because of discovery made here in our own province, in our backyard, where BC cancer was able to subtype breast cancer. You know, a decade ago, they just treated all breast cancers very similarly, but actually they, they've, they've discovered that actually there are over 10 different types of breast cancers. So they require different treatments. And so my friend, when she was diagnosed, they knew exactly what to do for her. They had the tools in the toolbox ready to go. And that's essentially what donor support does. And BC Cancer has a long track record of significant discoveries and innovation in cancer. And that's largely because of the support of the BC Cancer Foundation in our community. All right. Well, you've sold me. So once again, Sarah, <laughs> what is that? What is that website that people people can go to? Go beyond belief, bc.ca. And I want to emphasize that every dollar counts. I know $500 million sounds like a huge number. It is. It's good. It's the largest health fundraising campaign in British Columbia's history, but every single donor makes a difference and add, that adds up. So I want to thank everybody and to all of the listeners who perhaps have someone close to them who has cancer, know that there's an enormous amount of hope and supporting BC Cancer and the research is what brings hope. Well, I hope that we can help you out with that. Uh, nothing I would love more than that. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. This morning we're talking about a generous donation that has been made by the Prime Minister in the Queen's memory. But is it generous when it's our money? That's what we're talking to Raji Sohal about this morning. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, Canada is donating this $20 million to Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Program in honour of what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has called one of his favourite people. And the scholarship was set up in 2012 to mark 60 years on the throne. We all know $20 million is a significant amount. In fact, when I came across the headline, gosh, I got dizzy reading it, just thinking $20 million. Hmm. That's because, a lot. Yeah. And just as uh, recently as last week, uh, when we we're hearing those numbers, about 33 million people in Pakistan have just lost their homes to flooding. And the Canadian government said, we'll match the public's donations up to $3 million. Three million, but like, okay, excuse me, while we have a very pricey cup of tea on the public's dime for the queen, 
if this if this twenty million dollar so called gift was done as a gesture of appreciation for Her Majesty's service, which okay, if that's the case, but if that was the case, Simi, then Prime Minister Trudeau needed to do a lot more to help families stay home on Monday, the day of the Queen's funeral, when kids were welcome to stay home and be off of school with no one to care for them. And now people will say, oh, no, that was the province's responsibility. I'm sorry. If you're willing to throw a $20 million gift out there that is, in fact, our money, taxpayer money, then you need to find a way to work with the provinces to have gotten people the day off to actually do something that would honor the queen. Right. If parents could have stayed home and had conversations with their kids about uh, the monarchy and about the queen and her years of service, that would have been significant. Right. So here's what I was thinking, too, because I read through this story and I thought, on the one hand, okay, that's nice that we're donating money and kids will get us some scholarship money as a result of this. But then, you know, it didn't help that I was been reading all of these stories about the the billion dollars that, you know, King Charles and Prince William are going to be inheriting and essentially all the money in the castles and the, you know, because there's been a lot of talk in the British papers about who's going to get what, how the, how the estate's going to be divided up. But what's very clear is that we're talking about a lot of, a lot of money and palaces and things available at the disposal of the royal family. So then I started thinking, can't they fund their own scholarship program? Right. Well, King Charles III apparently was very busy in the last several years amassing more wealth for the royal family. So the royal family must hold billions of dollars of wealth in assets, which include land. And I think it'd be more appropriate for the monarchy to redistribute its assets to the Commonwealth countries in the form of scholarships. They, this should be a time for them to thank the Commonwealth countries that have had this very strong relationship with the Queen all these years. Mm-hmm. Also, Simi, there's this thing with the fact that hours before the funeral procession for Her Majesty began, uh, the former high school drama teacher, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, did that casual performance of singing Bohemian Rhapsody, which, by the way, nobody asked for. And I think that in part that what he did there with his little singing uh, bop that he did uh, near a piano just hours before the funeral procession was to begin. I think that was a major flub and he was trying to clean up the mess after that with this gift. And I think also that we should brace ourselves for a more emboldened, maybe less apologetic Justin Trudeau. And I think that up against Polyev and the latest rancor of Canadian politics and the mudslinging we're about to see happen, I think he's going to be more cavalier in his moves and less apologetic. Hmm, Interesting. All right. We'll see what happens. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal talking about the donation, a essentially Canadian taxpayer donation of $20 million to the scholarship program for Queen Elizabeth. And yeah, great that people are going to get money. But as Raji argues, the, like the royal family, they could have made that donation themselves rather than the Canadian taxpayers doing that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Did you travel through an airport this summer? It was challenging on a lot of different fronts. We heard stories about how Toronto Pearson was making headlines right all over the world. Mountains of luggage, huge security lineups. And I know there was a lot of concern about YVR, but you know what? There were some hiccups. But I think for the most part, YVR did okay this summer. We're going to find out how that was. Joining us now is Tamara Vrooman, the president and CEO of YVR. Tamara, thanks for being here. 
Yeah, good morning, Simi. Let me ask you, first of all, we're hearing that the Arrive Can app is going to be lifted at the end of September, travel restrictions eased from the federal government. Uh, how is that going to have an impact? We certainly have heard the same. We have no official news that that is uh, a certainty, but uh, certainly anything that can uh, improve the movement of people through our airport will improve our performance. And we've seen it in countries around the world, those uh, COVID requirements being lifted uh, to the benefit of travellers and uh, to the airport. So what was the summer like for travel through YVR? How do you think the airport did? Well, it was certainly a very unique summer. You know, we experienced the single biggest increase in passenger volumes in our 90-year history. We went from about 40,000 passengers a day in uh, February to about 65,000 passengers a day in May. So a very, very over uh, 50% increase in our traffic. And we had some growing pains there for sure. But, you know, I think we didn't experience the same kind of disruption that we saw at airports uh, around the world, principally because... We've done a lot of work in the pandemic to strengthen our baggage system. So our outbound baggage performance, that means did we get our your bags on the planes uh, on time and in the right place, was over 99%. That is better than any airport I've seen uh, across North America for the same summer period. And then it ultimately came down to our people. You know, our frontline people are very dedicated to the service that we provide to our community and our passengers. And we had over 300 volunteers from finance, H marketing, volunteering to do shifts, whether it was in the parkade or in the CATSA lineups, to make sure that people had the information that they needed to keep moving through our system. So there was, there were some frustrations, though, too, I would imagine. And where what, what did those center on? The frustrations really centered largely on labor shortages, you know, like so many in the service industry. Aviation has been the same in terms of making sure that uh, we have adequate and well-trained staff. And it's not like you can just show up and be a screening officer. It takes years uh, sometimes and often months of training. So we certainly uh, struggled uh, as an industry on the staffing front. For the airport proper, though, we became a living wage employer uh, late last year, and that allows us to pay a uh, fair wage for uh, our region, which allowed us to attract uh, over 80 people in one case to our front line in just a few short weeks, uh, over 600 applicants who are keen to work at the airport. So I do think that the labor piece is working its way through the system, but that certainly was the main cause of disruption. And what about flight delays? Because I know, you know, airlines obviously had a lot of issues with their staffing and, and that caused a lot of flight delays and people, you know, did that negatively impact the airport? Well, certainly uh, we are an ecosystem and it is a team sport. And so if one part of the supply chain, uh, an airline, for example, has a delay, then, of course, it delays our ability to get the next flight uh, on its way um, after departure. So we did experience delays. Uh, Our on-time performance uh, did suffer a bit, uh, but again, uh, not nearly to the extent as others. And and that's largely attributed to our people and the fact that we had very much uh, heads down problem-solved approach. We've used technology to really put data in the hands of our people so they can see where the delays are, anticipate, send extra staff and resources to get people in bags moving on their way. Are things getting better on that front when it comes to delays, when it comes to baggage problems? 
certainly things are much, much better than they were at the beginning of the summer. In particular, April was our worst month. In uh, in July, we moved over a million bags uh, through YVR. So that level of throughput was the same level that we would have seen pre-pandemic, and we did that uh, we did that on time. The fall will be a little bit easier with fewer people traveling, but of course, we never rest. So we're getting ready for the Christmas holiday season, where we expect it to be busy once again. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you then. So as we wrap up for the holiday season and now we're hearing about these travel restrictions being lifted, arrive can being lifted, that could obviously impact a lot of tourism coming to town. Is the airport prepared to handle higher numbers like we're talking pre-pandemic numbers? Uh, we certainly we certainly are. Uh, as you probably know, we completed a, a beautiful 300 million uh, international terminal expansion. And so we have the space. Uh, and so we're quite fortunate there to be able to move people through and uh, make sure that we uh, can comfortably and efficiently get them on their way. But we're also using technology to put more information in the hands of passengers. We'll be piloting very soon uh, an app that will allow you to see when the Taxi lines uh, are going to be busiest pre-book a time and guarantee that you can get through in a timely fashion uh, and comfortably so that you have time to make your flight. Those kinds of innovations have already been piloted at the border. You know, we've been uh, working with Canada Border Services to allow uh, pre-population of small things like declaration forms, but that can add 50% wait times uh, at the border. We've done that. We've seen a huge reduction in wait times at the the border at YVR. And now those innovations have been rolled out at Toronto Pearson and Montreal as well. So it's a combination of good planning, technology and great people that will uh, will see us uh, perform better and get us through. Okay, I'm fascinated by the suggestion of this app that you're going to be piloting. So does that mean that it would be kind of like when you're at Disneyland or a theme park, whereas that you would have a window, then that's your window to make it through security? Absolutely. When is that going to be rolled out? We see a similar technology already been piloted at uh, Seattle Tacoma Airport, and we've been in contact with them uh, to see how that's going, to learn from it. We'll be the first uh, airport in the country to to do that. And as you probably know, YBR has a history of innovation. Uh, Those those check-in kiosks that now uh, are common across the world were first invented and piloted at uh, YBR over 20 years ago. So we're going to continue to look for ways to make it easy for people to get on their way, to efficiently get through, and to most importantly ensure that our our airport runs uh, well for for the service of our community and the economy. So what about the staffing issue then? Are you confident that heading into the busy holiday season that there is the staffing to make everything run smoothly? We have not had uh, as an airport the same kind of turnover that we've seen in some places, certainly for highly trained uh, for highly trained positions, pilots, screening and security officers. There is a lag time between when uh, people are hired and when they can be uh, performing their duties. We've seen a huge uh, hiring over the spring and summer, and that's now coming into uh, the system. Is it perfect and where it was pre-pandemic? No, it's not. But certainly we're in a much, much better position heading into the Christmas season uh, than we were earlier this year. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this pilot project, too. Tamara, thank you for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks very much for your interest, Simi. I appreciate it. Always. Tamara Vrooman, that is the president and CEO of YVR, talking about the state of the airport. It's been a rough few months, right, for Canadian airports. And i got to tell you, having traveled through quite a few of them, actually, in the last four or five months, uh, YVR did a great job. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. We're also talking there about the removal of the Arrive Can app, which is something that apparently the Canadian government is about to do in the next couple of weeks. Would that impact you? Let me know, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, we keep hearing that low-income and medium-income housing is so hard to find in Metro Vancouver. Well, we're going to talk about a recent build in North Vancouver that is very interesting. We're going to find out why. Our Raji Silhal joins us. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. This is a somewhat surprising even awkward situation. So what happened is the Kiwanis North Shore Housing Society got $10.6 million from BC Housing. This is a fund that stipulates different levels of affordability for people in different income brackets. Okay, now of the 106 new rental homes within this development, 20% are reserved for people on social assistance with rent capped very low. Then half the units are offered at 30% of household incomes under 57,000. And then finally, there's a block of renters making up to 77,000 that have their rental suites capped at 1750. It's a wonderful system with, I'm sure, a lot of people waiting in line who need that housing. So Kiwanis has this mandate to serve seniors and district council wrote a minimum age of 65. So you had to be 65 or older and this would govern who could live there. The plot twist is that Kiwanis was not able to find enough tenants who meet those requirements. So they ended up in July with 61 empty below market what? homes in a terrific neighborhood. And this is just unheard of, Kasimi. If you cruise uh, Craigslist or the rental websites, you will find nothing in that market, in that area, certainly nothing affordable. And we know so many people are on uh, low income or medium income and could use that housing. So that was a very weird, awkward situation for them. So what they had to do is go back to the district council and say, can we change the requirements? So ultimately, they lowered the age to 55. That didn't fully solve the problem because now they're looking at 21 empty units in a housing market that certainly needs more units. So I talked to the District of North Vancouver, Mayor Mike Little. He told me he's satisfied with how they were able to adapt the requirements, uh, lower that age to 55 so that more people could live there. But he says housing shortages are due to not meeting the demand of immigration and that our government uh, welcomes immigrants to meet the uh, economic demands of our country and they come to the the metro centers. Uh, But then that puts a crunch on the housing situation. Here's Mike Little. I think the province has made a very significant commitment to um, uh, to housing, but I think what you're starting to see more and more is that uh, uh, the key driver to demand for housing in the Lower Mainland is our national immigration policy, uh, which uh, can make absolute total sense uh, to the federal government to because you've got uh, demographic challenges. You want to uh, make sure that you're getting uh, uh, that you're bringing people in with key skills and um, and also just in key demographics. That can be very good for Canada as a as a policy. But the challenge is when you're at about 
400 to 450,000 people per year, which is the projected goals for the federal government, you uh, need to produce about 170,000 to 100 to 200,000 units per year across the country. And they're unevenly distributed, right? Like you have um, five centers, largely Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, and Calgary, where, um, where overwhelmingly the immigration is going to those centers. And that's great. But the support from the federal government needs to follow it. And I think what they should be doing is, is following the good work of the provincial government in terms of housing and, and BC housing and supporting them with more per door subsidies. So when, the, when BC housing comes in and they're able to put $50,000 per door towards new housing initiatives, uh, federal government should just go along and say, we support uh, your criteria and your, your process and we are going to match it with another $50,000 or $100,000 per door each. I think that that's the only way you're going to both incentivize municipalities to be both welcoming of um, uh, the growth, uh, but making sure that they're producing housing units that um, that are going to look after that growth. And so that that's one of the big challenges is that uh, we have growth uh, pushing up the demand and pushing up the um, uh, the prices, uh, but we don't have the support uh, from the government to. Uh, to to help mitigate that on the um, uh, at the community level. Okay, so that's interesting, Roger. I wonder too. Did enough people know about these openings? Did they know that this was available? Oh, that's a good question. So what happened is, uh, no, they didn't. Um, and you'd think that the development would have been prepared for that. Um, so they didn't. And then they upped the marketing campaign in August. And that's how they got from 61 empty units to just 21 empty units. But still, 21 empty units in that neighborhood um, that's targeting seniors, that's a, that's a lot. They even, in fact, so they lowered the age requirement to 55. They put out this marketing campaign, recruited some more residents that way. And then the other thing they did was they hired a realtor uh, with all their connections to try and help them find candidates. And one thing I was curious about was I know plenty of, okay, you can't find enough seniors or people even over the age of 55 to live there. I know plenty of young people that would be happy to live there that don't make enough money to live anywhere else or they're living in situations where there's like four people to a bedroom uh, and not earning enough income to move past that. And uh, he said, well, He's on a he strictly supports the mandate of making sure that seniors are covered, right. given that fair enough, Lynn Valley has a huge senior population. Right. But one other thing that we talked about, Simi, was uh, multi-generational housing. He said this is something the provinces need to pay attention to because gone are the yes. days when you turned 18 and, and you moved out. I'll just play a little quick clip from the mayor here. Probably one thing that probably, in my view, doesn't get talked about enough is um, uh, multi-generational housing. If you want short-term solutions, we need to work towards uh, re removing and reducing the barriers to multi-generational housing. That's an important conversation. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. While municipal elections are less than a month away, we are going to the polls on October the 15th right across BC to elect mayors, councillors, trustees. One of, and if not the biggest issue for communities, is housing, of course, finding it and being able to afford it. So as part of our continuing coverage on this year's elections, we turn our attention this week to the Vancouver mayoral race. We are speaking with the five major candidates for mayor and talking about that one huge, important, overarching issue 
of housing. So yesterday we spoke with candidate Colleen Hardwick. Well, today we have the next candidate. We have Mark Marison, who wants to be the mayor of Vancouver with Progress Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start with the plan. What is your housing plan? Well, let's start also, if we can actually move back a little bit and also talk about what the overall plan is, and that is to re-establish Vancouver as the social, cultural, economic center of the Lower Mainland and of British Columbia. And to date, we aren't. Um, 7,000 people left Vancouver last year. Um, that was the first time, like, that was a net, 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 net loss. And 100,000 new people came to British Columbia, which was one of the biggest net gains we've had in our lifetimes. So something seriously is wrong, and I want to make Vancouver grow again. Okay, how do we do that? We do that by welcoming people. Um, basically, what we had uh, for the mayor and council for the last four years, they came up with something called the Vancouver Plan, which has a lot of good ideas, but it's essentially a plan to make more plans. And Kennedy Stewart um, just recently um, confirmed that he's also just making plans to make more plans because he talks about making building 220,000 new homes, but he doesn't talk about the changes that we need to make to the regulations to allow these homes to be built. Uh, for example, we don't need a plan to know, we don't need a Vancouver plan to know that we need family, multifamily housing around schools and around transit and around playgrounds. And if I become the mayor, we'll allow that right away. Okay, so how do you make that happen then? Is there, do you have a, a, a goal in mind for the number of units that need to be built? Like, how do you encourage that housing to be built? Well, we'd like to, we'd like to increase our targets to about 15,000 per year, which is, which, which is ambitious. The fact is, is that at the, at the current rate, um, Vancouver is, is falling behind the other cities. Surrey is welcoming people. Coquitlam is welcoming people. Burnaby is welcoming people. What we need to do is we need to allow the kind of housing that people can actually uh, afford to be built. And on 75% of our land, we are only allowed to build single family homes that pretty much no young, fam no young Canadian family can ever afford unless they have a big inheritance. So we have to think about how we can build, for example, townhouse complexes around schools so that schools can have students in them. Right now, we've noticed that there's a number of schools in Vancouver that are, that have, that are projected to have as much as 30% drop in enrollment because there's been an exodus of young families because our mayor and council hasn't acted quickly enough. Okay, so how do you plan on getting that done? I mean, you would obviously need to have councillors from your party who would vote for you. If that doesn't happen, if you don't get a lot of councillors from, you know, Progress Vancouver elected, how do you plan on getting that done? Well, what, what we've noticed is that we've led the charge on this subject for quite some time, and there are a number of other parties that are taking this position. One city is, for example, and so is Vision Vancouver. Um, we don't know where Ken Sims stands yet on this. He hasn't he hasn't released his housing plan. Colleen Hardwick doesn't agree. We don't know where where Fred Harding is, but the fact is is that as a mayor, I I will be seeking common ground. For example, um, I, I support uh, very much what uh, some of the councillors that um, came from ABC were doing around trying to get at the permitting issue, and I also support Jean Swanson when she says that we should have um, some kind of way of having a progressive property tax for those that are that that, that can afford it the most, like the the, the, the top one percent of properties. Okay, that sounds pretty ambitious. Then, so are you saying what you would work more with the other parties? I would work with the other parties, but I would certainly hope, and I, I have an excellent team of folks that people can vote for. There's six people that are running with the Progress Vancouver team. They're broad cross-section of people from across the political spectrum because left and right doesn't really apply here. What applies here is whether or not we think that Vancouver should be a welcoming, growing, thriving, exciting city, um, a city where there's socioeconomic diversity and racial diversity of every, of every kind, or an unwelcoming city, a closed city, a 
a city of, of yesterday or a city like basically like Palm Springs rather than than the Vancouver that we that most of us are quite excited about. OK, so how would you how would you deal with the red tape issue? Right. Lots of people will say that trying to get anything done to your home, even if you want a renovation, if you want to build something new, it is just a bureaucratic nightmare. Where do you stand on that? Well, there's a number of things that we need to do. For, for one thing, other cities have figured it out. Um, so for, start with looking at best practices from other cities. The other thing is to sh- make sure that we hold city, city staff accountable um, to, to the targets and to what it is that we're talking about. This is a crisis. I know it's been going on for quite some time, but it still is a crisis. And City Hall still doesn't seem to understand that. So that's an important uh, thing, thing to do. And also just finding ways to have some pre, pre-approved designs. For example, I don't know if you're aware, but if you want to build a, a, um, a, a laneway house, each and every one of them has to have a unique architectural design, which is, is quite insane. We should be able to have some, some pre, predetermined designs so that people could just, if they go with that one, then, then, they, then they've got their, their permission. You talked about accountability then um, for city staff. How does that work? What, what do you, how do you foresee that? Well, if they see that, that there's been a mayor that's been elected with this mandate that has said that we are going to build this housing and we're going to make sure that young families can live here, that seniors' residences can be in every neighborhood. Because, for example, our, our city was built um, mostly before uh, people got a lot older. So right now we need to make sure that our grandparents can live in our neighborhoods and our and their grandkids can live in the same neighborhoods if possible. And, and, and that dream has been shattered for, for the past 10 years. So how do you deal with the issue of you're talking about building more multifamily housing, so townhouses, things like that, in a city that is zoned mostly 80 percent for single family housing? There's people who live in those single family neighborhoods that might not want to see those multifamily homes there. How do you deal with that challenge of neighborhoods who don't want to see that change? Well, I think one of the reasons why that people might be concerned about this is because um, they, what they're actually thinking about is they're talking about their the neighborhood character that they remember that they were growing up with. But our neighborhoods have been hollowed out. If we want neighborhoods that are going to have kids in them, playing in the parks, if we're going to have schools that are full, if we're going to have um, if we're going to have neighborhoods where you can have your teacher live in the same neighborhood as you, or you could have first responders like police, police officers and nurses living in our city, right now only 5% of our first responders that work for our city live in our city. We've got to change that. So what about the Vancouver plan? What would you do about that? We heard from Councillor Hardwick yesterday saying that if she were the mayor, she would want that rescinded. What would you do? I, I think there's a lot of good ideas in the Vancouver plan, but some of these things just should have been acted on a long time ago. It's, it's, I, I personally think it's insane that we, we don't have multifamily housing as a matter of, of right around schools uh, right now because young families can't live in Vancouver unless they have a big inheritance from, from, from their parents. And, and if that's the kind of society that we're, we're becoming, we've got to change course. Okay, so on a final note then, why should voters vote for you? Tell them. Well, because I have experience uh, dealing with these kinds of issues, I worked uh, heavily on, on as an advocate for the public infrastructure and for transit. I helped I helped deliver the uh, federal funding for the Canada Line. I helped de- de- develop the um, Millennium Line and the and the uh, and the Evergreen Line, and I also fought the CPR on the rates that 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 West Coast Express was charged and won. Um, I worked at federal, provincial and municipal politics. This is the first time I'm running, but I but I do know how the whole system works. And our system right now at Vancouver City Hall is broken. And I'll bring that experience to, 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 to the table. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning.
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's Mark Marison, candidate for mayor of Vancouver with Progress Vancouver, one of the candidates on the ballot there. And we're talking to a lot of the major ones this week. So we've spoken to Colleen Hardwick. Now we've spoken to Mark Marison. What else do we have in store for you? Well, tomorrow we'll be speaking with Ken Sim. Friday, we'll speak with Fred Harding. And Monday, we will speak with the incumbent, Kennedy Stewart, who is also running for re-election. So big week. And our topic, of course, is housing. How will these candidates deal with it? What do they plan to do? And what is the kind of vision that people want to see for their next mayor of Vancouver? Now, if you have can, if you have questions for these candidates, if you want to talk about their issues in housing, what you think they should do, what you would like to hear, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. When you hear about fundamentalist Latter-day Saints communities, you probably think about uh, Utah or maybe a documentary that you watched on Netflix. But there is a long BC history with these communities as well, a history that is potentially returning to the forefront. Let's talk about why that is. Daphne Brahman is a columnist with the Vancouver Sun. She has been covering this topic of polygamous communities in BC for years, and you should definitely read her latest piece at VancouverSun.com. And she joins us now. Hi, Daphne. Good morning. How are you? I am good, thank you. I feel like when I was thinking about this and reading your column, I think I have talked to you on and off for 10 years. You've been coming on the show talking about this topic, haven't you? Sadly, I think it's longer than that. Oh, my goodness. You're probably right. So why now? Why is this coming back to the forefront? Well, there was a a bit of a hiatus. Um, The prophet of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, he has been in jail and he has been he's jailed for life in Texas. And after he's been in jail, there's been a whole lot of chaos kind of in the community. But one of the revelations he had early on is that people should not um, get married and, and that they should not have sex. So there have been no babies born, no women, have, no, no people have been married. And so this sect, which is, it doesn't proselytize, so they don't go out looking for members. The only way they get members is to create their own, is to have babies. And um, after 10 years of him being almost 10 years since that revelation, the community is, is very depleted. So um, he suddenly had a revelation from jail, or at least his son has had a revelation, um, that they need to have babies again. So it appears that they're asking people to come back to the community, and they are asking, um, they're suggesting that there might be marriages started again. But because there's so few men left in the community, because Warren Jeffs, the the prophet, got rid of them, um, they're asking the men to come back to the community. But most of those men that are coming back are older men. And among the older men who are coming back is James Oler, the former bishop, who um, has recently been in jail in Canada for having trafficked a 15-year-old into the United States. And he also spent time on, he was also convicted of one pound of polygamy, but he's back in, he's back in Bountiful in South, Southeastern British Columbia. And um, he's delivering the revelations. And so it starts up again. How powerful do you think that message is from when you've seen in these communities and how they work? Does that work for him for suddenly him to say, oh, we're going to start doing this now? Are they going to start doing it? Well, for amongst those who have stayed, I mean, they've had a very they've had a very rough go of it. They um, they've been the the women particularly have pretty much been left on their own. Um, they've been taught since birth that they are supposed to be their highest youth is is to become mothers in Zion and have as many children as they can. And there are a lot of um, young women in living in Bountiful right now 
who um, are heading into their 30s and aren't married. Um, and they, they, have no, they had no prospects of being married uh, until now. And so some of them desperately want to um, get married and have children. I mean, it's not, it's not even a religious, so much a religious thing, I, but they, they've been, they literally have been sitting around for 10 years waiting for this to happen. There, there was always a challenge here, Daphne, wasn't there, in B.C. with the authorities trying to figure out what to do about Bountiful. What have the last few years been like then? Is that community still there? Um, yes, the community is still there. I, I understand that it's, it's quite depleted because most of the, most of the men, were either, men and boys were either expelled or left. A lot of the young men left, left because they could get jobs. And once they left the community for jobs, then they, they went on with their lives outside, the, outside of the religion. Um, the women have been a bit more stuck, and so they, they've been able to um, have a little bit more freedom. Um, some of that freedom has been forced upon them because they, um, they have no money. Um, and part of, the, part of the way that the fundamentalist Mormon communities survive is that they um, actually take, make good use of the child benefit, child tax credits. And so with no child tax credits, because there are no babies, um, they've had to go to work. But they're badly educated because Warren Jeffs, again, um, told them that they couldn't, they couldn't go to school. So many of them have been homeschooled by mothers who never got past grade six. So they've had a hard time finding jobs. But some of, they have found jobs, as one, as one does when one's desperate. But they've also gone online. Um, they have telephones. They have cell phones. And a lot of these... A lot of, at least some of these young women, um, have gone online looking for companionship, for friendship, and um, they're using an app that's called Bottled, as in letter in a bottle. And how I found out about what's going on in Bountiful, strangely, came from a, a, a Muslim man in Palestine who got in touch with me, who said, "I'm really worried about this woman I've fallen in love with, and she's an FLDS woman." This blew my mind when you wrote about this in your column, that that's the roundabout way that you came to realize that, wait a minute, there's been a bit of a revival here, is that they're having online relationships? Yeah. I, I, I mean, and they are, they're, I mean, they're, they're, even within their religion, in some ways, they're totally legitimate because they're not having sex. And the only way that women get kicked out of, of the SLDS is if they have sex outside of marriage. I mean, that's pretty much, and, and even then, if they repent, they can pretty much get back in because women are really important to the survival of this group. Um, so, so these young women are not breaking any laws. They're not committing any sins, um, but they're not supposed to have contact with outsiders. And so it's seen as, and, and they've also been quite open. I mean, these are, these are naive young girls a lot of them, and young women. And, um, but they've, the, this, this man in Palestine, told, he knows intimately what's going on in that community because this, uh, these young women are telling, are telling men, um, and apparently there are quite a few of them who have Middle Eastern pen pals. And so because, of, because Islam is the only other religion that has polygamy, there are some parallels between the two, but the difference between the FLDS and Islam is that for the most part, given except for perhaps the Taliban and some of those groups, some of the more radical groups, um, they're, they're allowed to come and go. 
uh, in the FLDS, they're not supposed to be telling secrets. They're not supposed to be talking about what's going on. They're supposed to be lying for the Lord and keeping secrets within the community. So this is threatening to the FLDS that these young women um, might, might be having friendships outside the group. But it's also an, it's also quite threatening. For, it's, it's, it's a bit frightening for these poor women. I don't think they know that they should be frightened, but yeah. certainly um, a former FLDS person that I spoke to said, you know, if these guys in the Middle East, if they have money and the means to get here, they could just come and take these young women, take them back to the Middle East, and we'd never they would disappear. Just so the double-edged sword in this is that these young women are likely to disappear into marriages in the United States um, to older men, into polygamous marriages. But they're also now, in some ways, at risk of disappearing because of the relationships they've built on the Internet. Unreal. Uh, Daphne, thank you so much for this. Appreciate that. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. That's Daphne Brahma, Vancouver Sun columnist. Read her latest piece. For years, Daphne has been covering the story of polygamous communities in BC and south of the border. And now the story is back up there. And if you read her column, you will understand why. Check it out at VancouverSun.com.